Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we're going to be talking about the lessons learned from COVID-19 for the future of global health security. And I'm very happy to welcome two of my favourite former foreign ministers of all time, Jonas Garstura, who is currently leader of the Norwegian Labour Party, but a former health minister, former foreign minister, and also someone who spent a decade as chief of staff to the head of the World Health Organization. He's joining from Norway. And also down the line from Cape Cod, we have David Miliband, who is the CEO of the International Rescue Committee, a former UK foreign secretary and I think one of the most articulate voices on how the crisis has been harming some of the most vulnerable people in the world in his writings recently. Thank you very much, both of you, for joining. Why don't we start with the central weaknesses in the global health system, which COVID has highlighted. The two of you have just written an article on global health security in in Newsweek, and you refer there to the unfulfilled promise of the 2005 international health regulations, when almost 200 states made commitments to prepare themselves against the dangers of international diseases and pandemics like COVID. But we've seen how badly prepared the world is in, in the last few months. Jonas, you have this extraordinary history at the intersection of healthcare and, and foreign policy and spent a long time working at the WHO, which has become one of the central battlegrounds about the both who's to blame for the crisis, but also what to do about it at the moment. Do you want to start with a short overview of what you think the main weaknesses in the system are? Well, let's start by saying that we are not finished with COVID-19 and COVID-19 may not be finished with us. It is still a virus and a disease where there are a lot of unknowns. And I think that also marked the beginning of this crisis, that there were a lot of things that were not really clear. I mean, could you be infected by people who were not sick? Was it really spreading? So what was the urgency of the crisis? That is something which we cannot fix institutionally because that is hard science and experience. But I think, you know, it's obvious that WHO as a world agency, a global public good, should be able to very rapidly get into the knowledge of laboratories and public health authorities, local and central in countries, so that the alarm can be spread and advice can be given. So I think the first thing here is that now WHO will be scrutinized and should be. But that's the first clear weakness that something which really affects all people on the globe has a two-week emergency system. Secondly, I believe that the international health regulations are key. That is, they came about to deal with globalization and the fact that people and goods traveled. But even if they are respected, they can be irrelevant in the sense that countries do not react as they should. And I think we've seen a big spread in the way governments have reacted. And they've basically reacted government by government, country by country. So what is really missing, and I think that's what David and I point to in this article, is true and strong multilateral cooperation. Governments have to sit down together. And we make the point that, I mean, during the Second World War, the Bretton Woods Conference was prepared while the war was going on, before anybody knew the outcome of the war. Because people knew that you need to do macroeconomic coordination and all of that much better after than before. And with that inspiration, now governments should come together in G7, G8, G20, UN Security Council, you name it, 
and assume responsibility at the highest level. Because I believe that the danger here is that health remains in silos, professionally among health professionals and politically with health ministries and, and health bureaucrats, which is fine, but it is not enough to deal with something which is now threatening not only life through virus, but also social and economic stability by unemployment and great vulnerability, especially in the, in, in the poorer countries. So, David, you are sitting most of the time in New York and you're watching a lot of the difficulties that the world has coming together. I remember when you were foreign secretary in the UK, you were dealing with a lot of the fallout from the global financial crisis and tried to bring the whole world together to, to come up with solutions to that. Why is it so much harder to bring the world together to solve COVID than it was to get people to come together around the financial crisis? And are, are there lessons that we can learn from that era? Well, I promise you I will answer that question. It's a very good and challenging question. But I just want to add something to what Jonas said, because he's rightly emphasized the weaknesses of multilateral or what Pascal Lamy calls polylateral global cooperation. But there's an additional dimension that I want to add, because I think it goes to the heart of the article that Jonas and I have written. The most important sentence in the article that we've written, I think, says the following. Those weaknesses revolve around the interplay between first underfunded national and local health systems, which are strikingly unequal, and second, international coordination, which relies on goodwill and is too weak in a world of great power rivalry. And Jonas has spoken very powerfully just now to the second of those. But I just want to emphasize the point that we've gone into this crisis, which has revealed weaknesses in crisis management, but we went into the crisis in a state of crisis when it comes to global inequality as it relates to global health. Just if you take 2019, the year before the COVID hit, 64 countries were paying more in debt payments than they were spending on health. There was one doctor for 5,000 people in Africa compared to one for 300 in America. So we have to understand that the underlying weakness of health systems is something that doesn't just provide a backdrop to the response to the crisis. It exacerbates the impact of the weaknesses of multilateral cooperation. Now, in respect of your point about the why should uh, 10 years after the financial crisis, there be so much more difficulty in trying to rally global cooperation? I mean, there are some pretty obvious answers. One, leadership. Whatever you think of George Bush and never mind Barack Obama, they had a different view of global engagement than the current incumbent of the White House, President Trump. But also in Europe, I mean, there was a real determination from Gordon Brown and others to rally a global opinion. Secondly, the global balance of power has shifted between the West and the rise of China. China's moved from what was what Deng Xiaoping called hide your strength and bide your time to uh, show your strength. And now's the time. And so there's a different balance, a more fragmented global system with a lot more rivalry, uh, not just at the rhetorical level, but also at the practical level. I think thirdly, and maybe as or more significant than the others, the COVID crisis is a bigger crisis domestically for many countries than even the financial crisis we've just had in the United States, the latest figures on the fall in GDP. It's staggering, you know, a one third fall in GDP in one quarter in the second quarter of 2020. So I think it's easier to find the explanations for why global cooperation should have been so so weak. I mean, abysmal in respect of the G7. It's harder to figure out well, what's, what can be done about it, although obviously the upcoming US election is an important part of any story about how to turn this round, because unless we turn around both aspects of the problem that Jonas and I identified, 
then the effects are not just on health and lives, they're on livelihoods as well, as we've seen in the COVID crisis. So I'd like to think about where some of the energy for reform is going to come from and talk about what might happen if Biden is elected, but also what happens if, if Trump wins. But maybe before, as well as thinking about the role of the European Union, which you talked about, David, and, and where how China fits into the system. But before we do that, maybe we can think a bit more about what some of the concrete changes might be, both to deal with the weakness of a lot of national health systems, but also what we need to be thinking about at a global level. I don't know if one of you wants to lay out some of your ideas which you put in the article about reforming the global health system okay i mean uh, we talk with political bias here and i'm you know as a social democrat i would say that you know one third of the countries in the world do not have public health systems that deliver decent services I mean, that's a rough figure. And I think the first lesson is that what you learn when you work at WHO is that the first protection against the virus and a pandemic, that is the national health system. That's where you get treated. That's where you get your warning. That's where you take your message. So the, the first thing will have to be that every country has to go through. Are we prepared? Do we have stock for medicines and for the equipment we need to deal with it? Because there will be new pandemics. Secondly, I believe that WHO has to go through its workings. It will do that now in a commission that will do the scrutiny here of Helen Clark and Ellen Sirleaf-Johnson, two experienced politicians. But my point here is that, again, health has to be broken out of the silo. David mentioned George W. Bush, who is not from my political side, but he sought leadership on health. I mean, the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis and Malaria came about on his watch and the Americans were quite active. And as Carl Bildt has said in a few of his you know, recordings, this is the first real global crisis without any U.S. leadership. I mean, there is a kind of reverse leadership where the U.S. is pulling out. But I think that the way forward for WHO, when they do their scrutiny and they strengthen their procedures, and Europe, if we talk about them, should back them up if America stays on the outside. I mean, they have a year to consider. And if there's a Biden administration, they will certainly pull out of WHO. But WHO have to do what they did 20 years ago, namely to reach out, connect with business, connect with industry, connect with civil society, connect with, with social groups around the world, bring health on the agenda of the economy, because David is absolutely right. This is far more serious than the financial crisis because it is really toppling the whole foundation of the economies. I'm very much for protecting WHO. It is an organization which is now stressed, insecure and uh, stretched under pressure from the biggest uh, funder, the US. We should do everything to protect and preserve this global public good. I think it's also important to say that we came to this from outside the immediate health area and tried to ask ourselves, what are the levers that are pulled in other parts of the foreign policy system that could apply well in health? So, for example, Jonas and I spent a lot of time dealing with issues of nuclear inspection in respect of Iran, control of chemical weapons. The, the no-notice inspection kind of strength of that regime is not mirrored in the WHO regime. It lacks the legal authority for independent visits, for example. Uh, we wanted to bring that into the equation. We wanted to bring into the equation also the relative power of the WHO secretariat, which is in a position where it is dependent in all sorts of ways on the money and the political support of member states. It's an abiding problem of various parts of the UN system. And we drew the parallel of the European Commission, which, uh, of course, is engaged in 
both subtle, informal, but also formal political relationships with member states, but also has a high degree of independence, which I think strengthens it. One thing we didn't put in the uh, article, Jonas, which might be interesting, is what difference would it make in for UN bodies if the top people in them were appointed to seven-year non-renewable terms? How would that increase their independence and their ability to speak truth to power? And I think that across the system, our point was we can't, it's not just that health mustn't exist in a silo because it has such ramifications for the rest of our lives. It's also that in thinking about global health, we've got to try and chart the best of our experience of the multilateral system. What gives it teeth? What gives it power? What gives it legitimacy? What gives it sustainability? We've got to try and bring to bear in designing a health response to the crisis that tries to chart a course for how the multilateral system should go. And I do think it's important that we recognise that this vacuum of, of global cooperation creates enormous crisis across the piece. If we can use the new public interest in global health coordination, which seems to be borne out by some of the opinion polling I've seen, if we can use that common sense notion that a connected world needs a more connected, powerful global health system, maybe we can use that experience to build confidence for other spheres as well, because it's not only in global health that the multilateral system is too weak, as I don't need to tell either of you two, you've both written and spoken about this many times. Can I, Mark, just add to that? Because I think David is right. He's alluding here to, I mean, education, climate change, where we need stronger uh, leadership. But but let me just go back and see what, what happened when there was really innovation in health. That was around 2000. Kofi Annan was at the UN. Tony Blair was in the UK. And they were international oriented leaders. And what they did was to sit down and consider how can we as government leaders add support and teeth to initiatives such as Gavi, the vaccination effort, such as the Global Fund, such as maternal mortality combat, quite technical health things, but they really saw the importance. So this was the issue of health was brought on the agenda of these bodies. Kofi Annan brought AIDS on the agenda of the Security Council. A lot of resistance to that, but it was really where it belonged. So here I again, I guess you will turn to Europe, Mark, and I think this is really something which we should expect to see from the European Union, from the European countries in the Security Council, come up with proposals. And, um, you know, in a half year's time, the US may be playing ball on this. And this is what we, we need. David, you've um, spent a lot of time sitting in meetings of European ministers trying to get things on the agenda, trying to help Europe rise to the challenge of being a global player. And it's, I suppose, had mixed results over the last decade. It's much more difficult now because there aren't the obvious partners that Europe had on the world stage when you were foreign minister. How much scope do you think there is for, for the European Union to use the current crisis in health to give a bit of energy back to the multilateral system? Well, I think there's responsibility that's clearly much greater than the scope. The commission has said that it wants to be a geopolitical commission, which seems to me to be right. I think there are two aspects to this that are really worth teasing out. One is, if you like, a rather technocratic way of thinking about it, which is there's a vacuum in the global system. We've got a hyper-connected world and a fragmented system of global governance. And 
the European Union is one of the most advanced forms of international cooperation, multilateral as well as polylateral, polylateral in Pascal's terminology, meaning that it includes engagement with non-state actors like civil society and the private sector, not just with state actors. So the European Union has a lot to say, but also a lot to gain from global cooperation. And that is a relatively technical, relatively transactional, you could even say, in that the European Union wants to cooperate with China on climate change. It wants to cooperate with the US on trade. It wants to work with African states on migration, you name it. But there's also a really important political aspect to this. The vacuum doesn't just reflect nationalism among countries. It also reflects the fact that liberal democracy is on the back foot. We're living in an era of what's called democratic recession. Larry Diamond, the Stanford professor, has written that every regime is becoming less liberal. I mean, the European Union knows this because of the Hungary experience, but also Polish fears. And so the European Union, as a uh, gathering of values, not just a gathering of states, has a distinctive perspective and a distinctive interest in that aspect of the global cooperation. And here's the way I would frame this. And I think this is relatively that there's some new data and new perspective on this. It's absolutely clear where the right in America are going when it comes to dealing with China. I mean, the speech that Secretary Pompeo gave at the Nixon Library last week was very significant in that it linked the desire to build cooperation among democratic states, to fly the flag of the free society, it linked that to a comprehensive vision of the Cold War with the Chinese. It posited the Chinese as seeking global hegemony in the same way that the Soviet Union did. And it posited that the response needed to be one of confrontation on every front. Now, I think that the European Union has a responsibility to fly the flag of the free society, both internally and externally. But I also think there's a different way of understanding what China represents. I'm very nervous. I'm very unpersuaded that the prism of the, the real Cold War is one that can then be applied to successive other regimes that one disagrees with. Whatever the depredations of what the Chinese are doing in Xinjiang or elsewhere, it strikes me as category error to see them as trying to repeat the Soviet effort. They're certainly trying to avoid the Soviet demise. That's a big part of the thinking of the Chinese leadership. But I don't. I think that their primary interest is in sustaining the Chinese Communist Party at home, not in establishing or exporting a global model abroad. And that leads you to a very different view of how one competes, confronts and cooperates with China rather than simply confront, confront, confront. And that strikes me as being a particularly important aspect. But it's also got a particular resonance on this global health front. Because the truth is that the US withdrawal from the World Health Organization, allegedly at the concern, out of concern with Chinese influence, can only reinforce Chinese influence in the WHO. And so I think for Europe to say, look, we are absolutely clear that whatever our concerns about China's operations, either internally or externally, we have an imperative for global cooperation with them all on health as well as on other issues, and we're determined to work that through, seems to me a distinctive political as well as technocratic imperative for the European Union at the moment. Sorry for the long answer. So, Yanis, you've um, had some experience of the difficulties of dealing with China when you were foreign minister in Norway. How much scope do you think there is to get China to play a constructive role on global health more generally? 
Well, I think there is an opportunity in the fact that as on climate change, no country will be hit harder by climate change than China. There's a self-interest. And uh, China has taken a heart beating from this virus. And if the wet markets continue to be there, there will be new emergence of, of epidemics and pandemics emerging from Asia, emerging from China. So there's an obvious self-interest. Now, what we experienced was that deep, insecure China. I mean, they put Norway in the freezer for, uh, well, six, seven years because an independent committee awarded the prize to human rights activists. And, and I always, you know, said informally to Chinese interlocutors that Norway can survive that. Other countries could probably would have a harder time. But what you are portraying is a very insecure China. Why cannot you get around this and say, we disagree with this price, uh, but move on and make it little? Instead, they made it very big. So I think, you know, I completely agree with David in his analysis on how to deal. I mean, it cannot be confrontation and containment at any price with closed eyes as the answer, but it has to be a shrewd analysis of where you have to confront them, where you have to speak frankly and clearly, where you have to be courageous, but also where you can build common interest. And I think still there is a huge scope for that. But we have to acknowledge that authoritarian regime, from European perspective, acknowledge that they are deeply insecure. And, you know, as David said, you know, the, the thing he said is to preserve power of a party, which is so unfamiliar to with our democratic structure that it's hard to deal with. But explore common interest, try to engage in building institutions. And uh, that has to be the way to work. Why don't we end with US election, which is obviously going to be very consequential for, for lots of different reasons, but will, I think, be a, a very important test of what kind of role the US is going to play in the future and whether we'll see more of a return to the American leadership on these issues. How much scope, David, as someone who's an insider, an outsider insider in, in the US political debates, do you see for, for change if Biden's elected? And what happens if Donald Trump is, is re-elected? Yeah, I mean, Harold Wilson said a week is a long time in politics. So 95 days is a very long time. And anyone who thinks it's over should remember that I, I was told this week that Governor Dukakis in 1988 was the 17 points ahead. So one can't guarantee what's going to happen. I do want to underline that something that may be reaching European ears, the fears about American democracy itself challenges to voting before the election, challenges to results after the election should really scare people. I mean, the degree of danger that exists to a very fragile system of organization of voting state by state, locality by locality, some very dangerous thunderclouds are here. Now, there's a really important article by someone I know well and Jonas knows well, Bill Burns, former Deputy Secretary of State. He's got a really important article, I think it's either in Foreign Affairs or in The Atlantic, saying, look, a Biden administration can go for, or actually the future of American politics when it comes to the global system is retrenchment, restoration or reinvention. And the question about a Biden administration is, does it go for restoration or does it go for reinvention? A lot of people would say, and I would agree with them, that a project of restoration is very hard to square with the new circumstances. So much ground has been lost. Rejoining the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, four years after America left it, doesn't uh, restore the status quo ante. And so I think that there's a debate going on within the Biden administration uh, about priorities, about ways of working, about how American leadership works. And I think this is a pregnant issue in global health, but it's obviously massively important on climate, where there's still time before the November meeting next year in Glasgow of the Conference of Parties on Climate. But 
a range of other issues. And tram lines of cooperation, the tram lines of confrontation with China are obviously key to that. But I would say that the organization of alliances is absolute fundamental. So I would say that what does a Biden administration brings, it, it brings a, a balance of restoration and reinvention. And depending on whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, you'd go for either of those. I mean, I think the Trump administration is a second term. Uh, the straps would be off and we would be in a different situation. So-called populist leaders, nativist nationalist leaders have been shown to double down in their second terms, not cleave to the center. And so I think that it really is a fork in the road for the United States. But for good or ill, the United States has an outsized influence. We've seen that through the George Floyd protests that spread worldwide. I can't think of another country that, that would have the same kind of resonance globally as an event in the uh, US. But it also poses big questions for Europeans who need to decide how much to hedge against American unpredictability over the next 10 or 20 years, which I think is a very open question. So we will obviously all be examining the ruins of American electoral politics with increasing nervousness in the months ahead. And we'll definitely be returning to the issues we talked about today, about global health, about the multilateral system and about what role Europeans can play alongside others in delivering some answers to these quite enormous challenges which are much more as as David said part of ordinary people's everyday lives than most of the foreign policy issues that we discuss on this podcast thank you very much to the two of you for such a fascinating discussion I hope that we can carry on working with both of you on these topics in the months ahead but we have one thing left to do on this podcast which is our bookshelf segment David what's on your bookshelf at the moment in Cape Cod I'm halfway through Wolf Hall. I mean, I don't want to sound like I've gone completely um, into a uh, dark corner, but Hilary Mantel, Wolf Hall, Louise bought me for my birthday the third installment of her trilogy about Thomas Cromwell and Henry VIII, but I decided to read the first one first. I've also got a couple of other things here, which I just picked up. Amos Oz wrote a book called Dear Zealots, which has a remarkable passage in it about why compromise is an idealistic thing, not a betrayal. I got a lot out of reading that. On the pure fiction front, it's a book by a man called Nathan Englander, and it's called Dinner at the Centre of the Earth. And I really enjoyed it. Wonderful. What about you, Yanis? Having my university years from Paris, I, I have a French leaning. So let me mention two things first. Um, the novel The Years by Annie Ernaud is a fabulous way of portraying post-war France from an intellectual perspective. And I'm also rereading Tony Judd's book, The Burden of Responsibility, on uh, Léon Blum, uh, Albert Camus and uh, Raymond Aron. I think that's a, a very good piece about France, this indispensable country. And then I will add another book that I bought on my last visit to the US and God knows when the next will be, Pulitzer Prize winner biography of Thomas Jefferson, The Art of Power. Simply to, you know, go back and read it. And I found it very fascinating to see how many of America's challenges today, you know, can be traced back to discussions that the founding fathers had. I found when uh, impeachment was debated in the, the U.S. Senate, how from both sides of the aisle, they were referring to the large quotes from what the discussions, how the discussions went in the 1780s and 90s and around the turn of the century. So it's a really good biography and um, was a good read. Great, wonderful. So if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do let other people know about it by writing about it on your social media page and ours and above all by heading to whatever platform you used to download this podcast on and giving us a positive review and preferably a five-star rating as well. We'll put links up to all the publications we mentioned, including the article by David and Jonas 
at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Jonas Gastora, David Miliband, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and our editor is Marlene Riedel. Thank you.